and welcome to this episode of Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlint and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. In this episode, we will be discussing a new book about the debate between multiculturalism and interculturalism, as well as the success of the anti-immigration and anti-Muslim party Alternative for Germany. On to our first topic. Tariq Modoud, Professor of Sociology, Politics and Public Policy and the founding director of the Bristol University Research Centre for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship, is one of the key advocates of multiculturalism. A recent strand of critique of multiculturalism has come from um, so-called interculturalism, which takes a different approach to diversity and cohesion. But what is really the difference between multiculturalism and interculturalism? In a new book edited by Tariq Modoud, Nassar Mir and Ricard Zapata Barrero, Multiculturalism and Interculturalism, Debating the Dividing Lines, this question about what the difference is, is debated. The book contains contributions by some of the most prominent scholars on multiculturalism and interculturalism, such as Will Kimlicker and Ted Cantor. I asked Tariq Modu to tell us how the book came about and what the difference between multiculturalism and interculturalism might be. Well, the origins of the book lie in an article that Nasser Mir and I published in the uh, Journal of Intercultural Studies a few years ago. And um, the first thing we found was that, I mean, we just submitted it, um, um, unsolicited, independent, standalone article. But the first thing we found was that the journal said, oh, can we turn this into a debate symposium, which indeed they did. And then we found that um, our own article has had um, something like 10,000 views online when I last looked. And this is completely unprecedented for anything I've I've written or NASA's written, I'm sure. Um, So we realized that there was a real appetite for um, a discussion of interculturalism and multiculturalism. And also we have a a colleague that we've worked with on uh, one or two European projects, uh, Ricard Zapata Barrero, who over time has... um, evolved away from what at one point I I guess we shared and he is very actively involved um, as a a theorist in um, advising some European uh, projects on intercultural cities and in developing um, a theory of political interculturalism. And Ricard asked me if um, I would like to join him in having a European Science Foundation um, application for a seminar, for a workshop on uh, multiculturalism, interculturalism. And I said yes, and that application was successful, and we had a very good uh, workshop in, in Barcelona, And so with those two origins, we decided really we had 
a very interesting debate that wasn't found anywhere else, or at least not in single book covers, and that we should um, turn this into a book. And so that's what we've done uh, in this book. And you might well ask, well, what is interculturalism? Well, I would say that interculturalism has um, two key features. I mean, there are different interculturalisms. That'll come out in a moment. But the two key features that the different ones share is that, firstly, it is a pro-diversity view about um, society and politics and policy. And secondly, that its point of departure is a critique of multiculturalism. And this critique focuses um, on a number of things which vary across different multiculturalisms, but perhaps one that is uh, a common one is that multiculturalism uh, either encourages or has, uh, in the way that it's been implemented in places like uh, Western Europe, has led to segregation of populations by ethnicity and religion and so on, and tends to foster separatist tendencies in um, minority groups. And so that's the critique of multiculturalism, or just one part of it, the part that's shared by different multiculturalisms. But of course, interculturalism has something positive to say itself as well, which should be acknowledged. I would say that there are two, possibly three, interculturalisms that we encompass in this, in this book. The first one is the one that is to be found um, through the documents and the consultants and activism of the Council of Europe. And also, I think, something very similar is to be found in um, some UNESCO initiatives. And they take the view that um, it's a fundamental error to focus on groups defined by ethnicity, race, and um, I suppose religion as well. Uh, The focus should always be on individuals and the fluid identities that individuals have when they're in different contexts, some of which, of course, will be group identities. But these identities uh, don't define individuals because individuals pick them up and and, and drop them. They um, synthesize them with other identities to create new hybrid identities and so on. So the focus should be on individuals and not on groups. Secondly, um, the focus that this European interculturalism takes is very much on the micro. So the people who've uh, pioneered this, um, sometimes in theory, but often in a a practitioner way, um, are often teachers and uh, youth workers and community uh, activists who emphasize um, 
encounters between different uh, people um, in a classroom, in a school playground, in a youth center, in a neighborhood. Um, but all, all these are what I mean by the micro. Whereas, of course, multiculturalism has tended to focus on the idea of national citizenship and on laws and policies which are typically um, national laws and policies, though, of course, um, local government and local authorities and local activism is also part of multiculturalism. But nevertheless, uh, I think it'd be fair to say that multiculturalism has tended to focus on the macro and interculturalism is skeptical about that focus and says that real change lies in focusing on everyday encounters, on everyday experiences, and the interconnectedness and solidarities that can grow out of uh, micro-encounters. This does mean, I think, though I think Ricard wouldn't agree with me on this, and perhaps others wouldn't, but I think that it does make interculturalism relatively apolitical. Multiculturalism is quite clearly a political position. Uh, nobody doubts that. Whereas interculturalism doesn't have such straightforward uh, political character if it focuses on um, local encounters between neighbors or in a you know youth um, group or a youth center and so on. And related to that is that interculturalism works by distancing itself from the national. It has very little, if any, theoretical or practical engagement with the national. Uh, all interculturalists are always talking about um, neighborhoods, localities, workplaces. Probably the single biggest uh, population unit that interculturalists tend to refer to are cities. They very rarely have anything to say about uh, uh, countries, um, about uh, legislatures and uh, governments and, and so on. So that's one interculturalism. I'll briefly mention the other important one which is encompassed in the book. And, and that is the debate that's really been taking place in Quebec, where interculturalism is seen as a reaction, as an alternative to Canadian federal multiculturalism, the multiculturalism coming out of the government from Ottawa, rather than something organically reflecting Quebecan national political culture. And there, and this is really very different now, even though the same idea, interculturalism, or the same um, term at least, is used, uh, you'll see straight away that what Quebecans mean by interculturalism is very different from what Europeans mean by interculturalism. Because the central idea of Quebecan interculturalism is how to uh, accommodate positively, how to positively accommodate 
diversity within a national project because Quebecan uh, public intellectuals and uh, political activists clearly have a national project, a uh, survival and the continuation of um, the Quebecan francophone community as a political community. Um, And so for them, the questions about diversity must not cut across that project, but must in some sense fit within it. And they critique Canadian multiculturalism not because it's too group-oriented, as the Europeanists do, but because it is too much like Anglo-American liberal individualism, that it's not sufficiently appreciative of groups, including, of course, of a group like the Quebecan nation itself. And so their critique of multiculturalism involves recognizing that Quebec is a nation and not just another uh, part of a, a multicultural mosaic. It's a founding nation within Canada and not to be treated as a uh, unit within multiculturalism. And that, therefore, they also recognize uh, the, that there can be need to accommodate groups formed through uh, immigration over time, um, groups based on ethnicity, and above all, uh, in Quebec, the discussion tends to be about uh, actually groups based on religious identity, uh, Muslims above all, but perhaps also um, Jews. And this accommodation is not regarded as a problem, as it is by European interculturalists, as long as the Quebecans hold that it doesn't cut across the idea of Quebec sovereignty. Um, Another feature of uh, this Quebecan interculturalism is that it has a, a certain republican character. For instance, they emphasize the importance of political dialogue and of political uh, cooperation and political action. They think that many things that Canadian multiculturalism tries to resolve through the use of uh, rights um, which are um, you know, enforced by uh, law courts, so people who are affronted by something take it to law, to court, they say, look, it's much better that there should be political dialogue and people thrash out their differences and what offends them and what they think uh, is leading to um, disrespect for them so that there is mutual learning across society, not just solutions handed down from law courts. And relatedly, as part of this Republican view, is that Quebec does have now, anyway, um, it does now have a a strong uh, view of what we might call separation of church and state in the vein of French laïcité. And this has actually become very central to uh, the debates in Quebec, including some very um, uh, vociferous 
and hostile uh, debates, hostile to Muslims uh, debates. Um, and I think the important thing to, uh, one of the important things anyway, to learn from Quebecan multiculturalism is that the, is the argument that if we're talking about minority identities and minority rights, then what are we to make of the idea of the majority? Of the majority, not just in terms of numbers and voting, but the majority as some kind of uh, cultural group in society. And I think that Quebecan interculturalism has made that um, really a much more central concept than the theorists of multiculturalism so far have um, engaged with. Finally, I'll just mention, because it's much, much more briefly covered in our book, the, a third interculturalism, which is the uh, debates in Latin America, where they also use the term uh, interculturalism or intercultural, um, where they're really thinking about the nation building by undoing the divisions of hierarchies from the colonial era. The hierarchies, of course, to do with, you know, European conquerors and the subjugation uh, of the indigenous peoples and their cultures and ways of life, which now is part of a, a much bigger movement of indigeneity, of indigenous peoples' movements. There is this strand of interculturalism which wants to reconceive of uh, Latin American countries, of Latin American uh, nationhood, in terms of a uh, intercultural synthesis or uh, dialogue between those of European origins and and the indigenous peoples of South America. I think those those are the main things that um, we understand by multiculturalism and interculturalism in this book. And the, you know, more or less the unique feature of this book is that it is a debate um, across these positions. So I thought that was really interesting, the, the difference there in, between those different cases and the, the Quebecian case... Um, perhaps in particular, because I, I guess this idea of focusing more on the majority group as well as the culture is perhaps coming back a little bit in in Europe with, I don't know if you agree, but sort of any in revival of, of nationalism. Do you, do you think you can see any links there? Yes, definitely. I think that um, uh, we are being uh, forced to think uh, in Europe, and certainly as a multiculturalist, I feel very much um, I'm forced to think about well, what kind of as it were rights, if that's the right term, um, does the majority have? Because if I'm sensitive to issues around minority identity and the risks and threats to the loss of identity and how people feel when they're in that situation, well, what if, as is, you know, kind of happening now, some majority uh, societies say they feel 
that um, their own um, cultural identities are being disrespected by government policies and by the direction of events. So I think that um, the debate that the Quebecans have started actually um, can connect with uh, Europe very easily and more than connect, it can really take off. Another thing I was wondering um, is so so the critique that you mentioned that the critique that interculturalism has uh, uh, or poses to to multiculturalism, so idea that multiculturalism may foster sort of segregation and that we shouldn't focus on groups, we should focus on on individuals. We kind of recognise that sort of critique if, from. Um, well, I guess that's sort of critique against multiculturalism that we've heard for, for quite a long time. So in what way do you think interculturalism offers something new? Uh, in what way is it is a new sort of challenge against multiculturalism? Yes, well, I mean, say take someone like, you know, David Cameron, the Prime Minister. He says that he wants to see some kind of muscular liberalism and that the mistake of state multiculturalism, perhaps one of its mistakes, has been um, to focus on groups. Um, I think the question you ask is very interesting because how can interculturalists distinguish themselves from a position like that? Um, I'm not sure... I, I do know the answer. What I would say is that the interculturalists do put more um, effort in um, being pro-diversity and in um, proposing policies which are based upon interaction than perhaps, say, someone like David Cameron would emphasize. Um, so perhaps David Cameron's position would be more leaning towards the minority integrating or assimilating perhaps more accurately into a majoritarian um, context. Mm. And interculturalists would say, well, of course, there may well be majorities and minorities to some extent, but we mustn't um, make them more rigid, keep them loose, or as loose as we can, and just allow individuals to uh, focus on those people who are part of their everyday experience and part of their, um, you know, whatever it is, workplace, locality, and so on, um, rather than be thinking in terms of majorities and minorities. And that perhaps that is a truer commitment to an individualism I, I can imagine something like that being mm. being said by interculturalists but I think I think the question that you ask is a good one because in what ways would European interculturalists distinguish themselves from you know the kind of thing that Quebecans would just say well this is Anglo-American or Anglo-Saxon liberal individualism Hmm. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe just to um, to to finish a last question. So, um, 
multiculturalism has itself been subject to, like you mentioned, for example, David Cameron, but others, there's quite a, quite a lot of critique and a lot of people have, have talked about the kind of death of multiculturalism and in particular in, in Europe. Um, and so how how do you hope that this book can perhaps move that debate forward and what would you want that a debate about diversity and cohesion in Europe should be about or would be about? A small question. Well, <laughs> well, I think the uh, first thing we have to uh, really debate is what kind of difference are we talking about when we talk about um, integrating difference and what kind of integration. Multiculturalists have always focused on citizenship as the vehicle for embracing difference and unity. Um, and I think that still holds, and I think uh, we should do that. Um, that's exactly what we should be debating. Multiculturalists, of course, make a dis make a contribution that goes well beyond uh, liberal individualism, because they say that groups can be included, can be recognised within within citizenship. That citizenship uh, doesn't exclude that possibility. And in recent years, because of the rise of religious identities, especially of Muslim uh, political identities and cultural debates about um, Muslims from the majoritarian side, and especially in relation to, say, things like uh, clothes, headdress, face veils, and so on, um, issues about uh, the relationship between uh, religion in the public place and citizenship and the norms of um, secularity and secularism. I think these are uh, things that we need to debate. I think that um, national, the national identity um, is a very important accompanying support to national citizenship. And uh, again, this is the view that multiculturalists have have typically held um, but clearly with the rise of uh, more right-wing nationalisms that you referred to a couple of minutes ago I think that Europe now is being faced with a choice and the choice ultimately is coming down to something like a, uh, a kind of monocultural nationalism or something more plural a more plural sense of national identity, a more multicultural kind of nationalism. I think these, this is probably what is emerging as, as the, uh, the choice. Um, and finally, I guess we can hardly now not think about immigration. Uh, on the whole, it's quite noticeable that theorists of multiculturalism have had very little to say about immigration. Um, because they tend to focus on, you know, remaking, recreating um, a citizenship after, as it were, a generation of immigration, after there, there are new citizens. Um, but now, obviously, this is uh, such a, uh, a top issue that it can't be ignored. A couple of comments I'd, I'd make about that to just conclude, really, is it's interesting that countries that have been amongst the most selective in choosing immigration 
are the ones that we think of as multiculturalist countries. Canada and Australia are amongst the most selective, and those are two countries that we often think of as multiculturalist. I think in Britain, multiculturalism um, emerged um, at a time when immigration was being controlled. And if we, if we look back into the, uh, the debates about um, racial equality and uh, immigration, we see that the two of them were really kind of in left of center people here, I'm thinking about, were seen as interdependent. That equality and multiculturalism partly depended upon immigration control. And that a justification for immigration control was, ah, we're going to pursue policies of equality and diversity within the country so that we're not going to have hierarchies of citizens, second-class citizens, and so on. And, and perhaps at the moment we've lost that interdependence uh, between thinking about inter multiculturalism and thinking about immigration control. And it's interesting that no multiculturalist has ever written, or if, if they have, I haven't read it anyway, let's say that, about the European freedom of movement, which doesn't originate from multiculturalist uh, thinking or writing at all, but obviously is part of a European project, and which is, as we know, creating, at least in Britain, in the debates that we're having at the moment, creating a lot of... Um, uh, public concern, not to mention um, very offensive and hysterical um, language and uh, discourse. And I think that that is, of course, destabilizing for multiculturalism. I mean, it, it erodes the attitudes that one needs to cultivate in order to have a, a successful multicultural society. And um, I guess, you know, we might need to think about um, what should the multiculturalist response to freedom of movement, uh, whether it's within Europe or, or, or more widely be. If you'd like to find out more about this book and the debate between multiculturalists and interculturalists, then please visit the website talkingmigration.com. Now on to our next topic. Last year, Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel opened Germany's border for refugees. Since then, Germans have expressed concern with the relatively high numbers of refugees who have made it to Germany. And in the last round of regional elections in March, the far-right anti-immigration party, the Alternative for Germany, AFD, made significant gains. So, what is the state of the refugee policy in Germany? Will Merkel stick to her welcoming policies? And how will the mainstream German parties respond to the rise of the far right? Here to discuss the issue is Dr. Tim Lokoki, a transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund, who is an expert on populism and migration in Europe. To begin with, I asked Timo how Germany is coping with the influx of refugees and whether the German public is turning against Merkel's policy. Well, I do think this is three different questions. So the first question you have is, objectively speaking, how does Germany deal with integration, finding housing? And objectively speaking, um, I think that the accommodation 
of the migrants, of the refugees, hasn't created so many problems since the numbers have gone down massively in January, February. Um, in, in the months of September to December, you had 200,000 incomings per month, which really strained German administration, German infrastructure uh, to its limits. But the German infrastructure kind of accommodated to this kind of unnormal situation and was set up for taking in uh, Nolens Wolens, say, 200,000 a month. But then, as the numbers dropped to 20,000 in the last month, basically the German capacities um, to accommodate uh, refugees uh, for the first month or week at least is really kind of sufficiently suited to take in even more. Uh, the other thing is, though, can they integrate them in the job market? Can they integrate them um, in, the, in the labor force? Can they educate them fairly well? And here I do think the, the policies that uh, are needed for this are just about to um, be implemented, which means that whether these policies really be a success remains to be seen in the coming years, uh, not months. And then the second question is um, not so much a how does it work objectively speaking, does the administration cope? Administration copes, yes. But the second question is, does it really help the migrants, the refugees? And this is a very different uh, question. Just because administration can, say, administer the matter, that doesn't mean that migrants would uh, benefit from this. This is a very open question and depends very much on the individual stories, individual case. Uh, some migrants have found a job fairly easily, have found uh, integration and language course fairly swiftly. Others are struggling with German administration for six or nine months just to get a first appointment to be registered as a, as a refugee. And then the third question is, um, how is the public opinion changing, which I do think has pretty much very little to do with what's really happening, because here voters evaluate less uh, the objective references, but rather um, the political leadership on the matter. And here you've seen that public opinion has turned rather sober on the matter well before the last, well before spring, but public opinion changed in, in autumn already. So the welcoming culture already waned, say, in September, October is the latest, and has been replaced by a very sober take on the matter, which is not necessarily outright xenophobia by no means, but a very, say, um, pragmatic, rational, rational view, at least concerning 80% of German voters. 10% are still outright outspoken. They have a, provide a call for an armed policy, and 10% are outright rejecting uh, taking in any migrants. Um, and the perception of how the German government is handling the current situation is improving slightly over the last uh, week and months. Uh, this especially given the numbers are dropping massively of incomings and that the German government has been extremely fast um, to craft integration legislation. And the third issue German voters are, though, really concerned about is uh, our cultural concerns. And here, maybe similar to Sweden, the question whether the Islamic faith of um, the uh, some of the migrants pose a threat to German identity, which is, of course, the prime campaign topic, the German far right, the right-wing populist alternative for Germany, AfD, is now turning to. Mm, so that's really interesting. So in a way, you're saying that Germany is coping with the refugee crisis, so to speak, and, and that to some extent voters are perhaps recognizing that for being more favorably, um, having a more favorable attitude to, to how the government's dealing with it. But, but nonetheless, the main concern and what is driving public opinion is cultural concerns. Indeed. So what, basically what you can now see is that the first major issue has been uh, very plain. Can Germany take in a million refugees every year? 
administratively speaking. This was the very first challenge. Mm. And German administration more or less kind of managed in inverted commas. But now, since the numbers have went down so massively, this is not, not an issue anymore. The second thing has then been that German voters were worrying about, say, hey, but why aren't we keeping the borders open? This basically means the German state, German military, German police seems to be deprived of the very function we actually attribute, attribute to them, namely securing the national interest and the national, national realm. And in the German government, um, consciously denying this option and keeping borders open for other reasons, obviously, um, German voters grow wary about whether the um, German police or German military would be capable of taking care of whatever threat that might lurk um, to challenge Germans in the future. However, given now there are few incomings, this say, lack of control narrative also lost clout. But now German voters are concerned about, okay, now you have these um, estimations are 1.5 to 1.8 million refugees in the country um, so uh, roughly 2 million people in the country which haven't been there a year ago. And the question remains, um, will this change the country? Not so much economically, but will it change the country uh, culturally, which is indeed now the prime issue. Mm. And um, like you were saying, this uh, um, right populist party, the uh, um, AFD, the Alternative for Germany, has seemingly been quite successful. Is that, do you think that's right to describe them as successful? Well, of course, I mean, they, 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 in, in summer 2015, um, they stood at 3 to 4%, and they're now polling at 12, uh, which is, of course, remarkable. Um, they, they tripled their vote share. However, if you compare them to far-right movements all across Europe, they're still very, very weak. Um, they're just remember in Austria they had fifty percent uh, on, on Monday, in France they're standing between twenty and thirty. And in addition to that, um, I dare say um, that this current challenge uh, Germany or German administration was exposed to has probably been, in objective terms, probably the most substantial migration uh, challenge Germany ever had to cope with uh, since World War II. Um, so, given given the uh, the gratitude, uh, the largitude of the of the challenge, I do think the far right has not been extremely successful. Um, and even more, I think the far right has not been elected for a unique program. Or because they would have provided better solutions. If you have a close look at the polls and the surveys, German voters, most of them, they don't vote for that party. They vote against the others. That means, but at the same time, they still trust the other parties far, far more than the AfD, even and especially actually on migration integration policies. So this means German parties, if they forge a convincing narrative, convincing message, how they plan to address voters' demands of cultural concerns, cultural alienation, the AfD will have a very hard time to remain as strong as the party itself is struggling to set the agenda themselves because the party is still too young and German media is not very fond of them. Mm. I mean, I guess I've got two questions um, there to follow up. One is that even if the party is young, like you're saying, and maybe they're not that trusted, at the same time, perhaps that's what we've seen in other European countries mm-hmm. as well. And then in a few years, they are not so young anymore and, and they are perhaps uh, got better organized and, and more more trusted. So I don't know, you know, what do you see perhaps in a few um, in a few years time in particular um, if uh, there is continued 
um, influx of um, of refugees. Uh, so maybe start with that. What do you, what, how would you see their future, or what is their um, the challenge or the threat that they actually pose to uh, the other German parties, and in particular um, Angela Merkel? Mm. Um, um, you're right in pointing out that, of course, the perfect breeding ground, the perfect, perfect fertile soil for the AfD would be a rebounding of refugee figures. Um, um, but given that then the German government could be accused of not having delivered on a key promise, namely to massively cut the number of incomings. Um, in this very state where the AfD is not really um, internally consolidated, the, the wings within the party are almost equally split 50-50, and they have they struggled a lot to decide on a real program, and uh, German voters are concerned about extremist elements within their rank and file. So the party is scrutinized by German media um, as being on the brink to extremism, which would be a killer. Um, uh, Germany, similar as to other European countries, far-right parties need to be solid pro-democratic in order to increase more than a few percent uh, voters. If they want to poll between 10 and 20, they need to be a legit protest movement standing solidly in the democratic pro-constitutional camp. Um, what the AfD is currently benefiting from is that German parties have enabled um, an integration-migration debate which provided many inroads for the AfD, given that the integration-migration policies the CDU, CSU and the SPD have put forward hasn't been that conservative as German voters would have hoped it to be. And this basically was the electoral niche the AfD could tap into. But this in turn also means if the German parties are now doing that, if they are proposing policies and craft discourse which is speaking to German conservatives, then uh, the AfD might lose its prime on one and only campaign topic, namely being the only conservative, real conservative voice in the integration debate. And if they lose this capacity to present themselves as the only party forming such a program, then the party might drop a few percent in the polls, which would then spark and trigger a party internal debate, which would then in turn probably benefit the extremist movements within the party. And this would be a disaster for the public perception. So I'm saying that the future on this party is difficult to predict at that point in time. Next six months um, can show a stabilization of the party of 12 to 15 percent. It might also lead to the party dropping to 6 and 7 percent and falling into internal turmoil. Mm. And like you were mentioning there, it's um, a lot of people are quite shocked that such a party that is quite openly um, anti-Muslim uh, can actually be successful in Germany in particular. And you just mentioned that perhaps um, any form of extremism or anti-democracy um, tendencies will be perhaps extra difficult to be successful in, in Germany. So how far do you think this is the case that Germany is perhaps more resilient towards this sort of um, Islamophobia or extremism? I wouldn't say as, as dire as it might sound, Islamophobia is, is not a problem for German voters. Uh, German voters in general, they might be fairly pro-migration and they might be pro-refugee, but they're most certainly not pro-Muslim. Pro-Islam, they are not. Uh, if you have a look at compar comparative figures, German voters are amongst, aside from the French, I think, and the Poles, the most skeptical towards the Islamic faith in Western Europe. 
And the reason for that is um, uh, twofold. The German, uh, German conservatives uh, being rooted in Catholicism to a large extent and to a German party discourse up until very recently taking a clear stance that Islam is not part of German culture. This has only changed uh, in the last 10 years, which, however, alienated a lot of conservatives. So um, being anti-Islamic as such or very skeptical towards the Islamic faith is not a game changer. It's not hurting the German far right. However, what is hurting the German far right is being accused of um, being anti-democratic, standing against the German constitution, uh, being pro-Russian uh, and being, um, say, very outspoken about the European Union. So there is a melange of things um, which are really, say, crossing uh, the borders of what's politically acceptable in Germany. But the most important thing is that within the AfD, there are people who have a very hard time distancing themselves um, towards national socialism. And this is the game changer. Mm. It's not the Islamophobic aspect. Mm. Just um, maybe uh, to finish the last question, um, how so... Uh, you're saying that the numbers of refugees are going down uh, and I was just wondering what the main reason for that is and where do you see the future? So um, how will Merkel um, keep responding to perhaps this shift in public opinion? Mm -hmm. Will she try to even further press numbers down without actually departing at least rhetorically from this sort of open border policy or uh, so um so yeah so so why are the numbers going down and will they continue going down because of what their government's doing or, or how will merkel respond to public opinion mm -hmm. uh, it's a different question i think the numbers probably go down for, for a broad array of reasons and um, the, the the most important one obviously is the closing of the balkan route the closing of the Austrian border. Mm. Um, the second thing is, of course, uh, the, the deal struck with Turkey. Um, we, we're in the European Union, or you might say Germany, plus the others with Turkey, who struck the deal, uh, which, of course, has been the linchpin of Angela Merkel's plan to prevent border closings within Europe. Um, so you would have basically want to secure the borders um, at the European periphery. Um, what has been... Um, the chicken and the egg here, I think it's difficult to predict, is probably um, both um, working hand-in-hand, hand, which are kind of scaring away migrants, respectively, showcasing that there are so many boundaries, literally boundaries now, to make it from the Mediterranean to, to the north of Europe, that it has, um, um, say, a very um, discouraging effect. Um, so, but then... What's important for me is to say German public opinion didn't shift that much over the last year. Uh, even as Angela Merkel proposed to open the borders and take in uh, the refugees, um, the percentage of German voters saluting to this decision was 60%. And now um, Angela Merkel's refugee policies are supported by 50%. So actually, um, German public discourse didn't change so much. Uh, what has changed is that uh, the German voters were worried about well, the capacity of taking in 1.5 million every year. Uh, this has changed, obviously, but I think this is not so much um, a major, a major amazement. And the, the German chancellor or the German government, any German government, regardless of what party, 
um, aside from the far right, obviously, will not close the German borders. It will never close the German borders because this would be a tremendous harm to the German economy, which is dependent on the um, free movement of goods um, in the European Union and would be a major blow to the pro-European attitude of, say, not only the entire German administration, but 90% of German voters. Uh, being staunchly pro-European is basically, this is the red line you mustn't cross as um, a, a mainstream German politician, and the Merkel government won't do that. However, in integration policy, that's a different thing. Uh, what do you want to do with people already here? And here, uh, the government is very keen on addressing conservative voters' demands they cannot address otherwise in closing the borders. So they basically want to say, um, how to put it properly, they want to kind of conflate uh, the cultural conflict lines somehow convolute the issues and say, well, you know, we will not close the borders or we'll make sure that the people who are in the country have to strictly adhere to the rules we set up and everybody who does not do what we tell them and where it comes will be persecuted and in the worst case, they will be deported. So um, German integration policy has most certainly taken a very, very conservative turn over the last six months. To find out more about this episode's topics and guests and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website talkingmigration.com. That was all we had to offer today. Thank you very much for listening.